The following content has been rated for mature audiences only. Viewer discretion is advised. Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people, then I would have felt better. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. There must be something in that. I showed emotion. You know what people said? See, you really can't get violent and angry. Welcome to The Squonk and the Hag, a podcast about murder, mystery, the supernatural, and even a conspiracy or two. Dun, dun, dun. My name is Mo. And I'm Kraken. Welcome on in, guys, to another episode of The Squonk and the Hag. And we have a hag tale today. It doesn't roll off the tongue the same way as a crackle tail. No, no. And if I say it's a motel, it sounds like I'm going to say it's... Like it's, I'm saying motel with an accent. You just head on down there, down that street there, you make a left and you go on over to the motel. Perfect. <laughs> Look at that. We just came up with a new merch design right there. The, the motel. <laughs> Skeeter works front desk. He'll help you out. <laughs> yes. Time to get to work. I'll get my crayons. Uh, so yes, it is It is one of my stories, and uh, I've warned Krakow a few times, and I don't think he took me seriously, but this is not for the faint of heart. I will, I normally, you know, we kind of have the blanket content warning, you know, murder, crime, violence, etc. But this one is pretty bad. It includes rape, it includes various sexual abuse, sexual abuse of minors, and extreme violence, as well as a serial killer. So if any of that stuff is very bothersome to you, this may not be one to listen to, but it is a its a really interesting story. Uh, it takes place in the Soviet Union, and back when it was still the Soviet Union, because it's no longer the Soviet Union. I had no idea. History lesson for Mo. Uh, But yeah, so just to keep that in mind, but today we're going to talk about Andre Chikatilo, who is more commonly known as the Rostov Ripper. And we did, or I mentioned him a while back during the the Pachushkin episode when we talked about the chessboard killer. Mm Mm-hmm. So Chikatilo is Russia's most notorious serial killer. And Petushkin wanted to beat him. And that is actually why uh, Petushkin at the end was like, no, you need to co- you need to convict me of more murders. I have done more murders. You need to f- you need to find the evidence. I will give you the evidence so you can convict me because he wanted to beat the number that Chikatilo had. But he did not. It's not a record you should be trying to beat, and I think I've said that before. Yes, yes, that is definitely not a record you want to win. That's that's not a competition you really want the gold medal in. No, I don't think there is a gold medal. If there is, I have several questions. Yeah, well, at the end of this story, you will see the, what prize uh, Chikatilo got. Anyway, so our story is... Uh, starts out in the northeast of the Ukraine and a small village of Yablukna. Also, I will say 
I apologize for any pronunciations of everything and anything in this. We can story. just put a blanket apology on the whole podcast. Like we can't pronounce names and places. So yeah, well, and Russian is one of those languages. Like I don't think my mouth moves in the ways it needs to move to say Russian words. I don't think my mouth moves in the way it needs to move to speak English words, but fair enough. Anyway, in 1936, as part of the USSR, the country faced a devastating famine due to Stalin's uh, collectivization of agriculture. Basically, they made everything, you know, it was a communist regime, so everything was shared or whatever. So they had these collective farms and what they would do is they offered a one room hut and a very small area of crops that you could cultivate for food to feed yourselves in exchange for work rather than paying people a fair wage. You got no money. You would have a roof over your head and possibly some food. You get you get a roof, maybe some food. What more do you want? Um, oh, I don't know. Maybe definitely some food. All right, best I can do is maybe some food and a roof with a single hole in it. Two members of one of these collective farms, Roman and Anna Chikatilo, gave birth to their son, Andre, in October of 1936. And this kind of comes into the maybe some food. The family struggled to have enough food. A lot of times they ate grass and leaves just to survive. Anna actually told Andre a story of his older brother, Stepan, being kidnapped and cannibalized by other starving members of the farm. But this has never been officially verified or debunked or anything. It's just a story that she told her son. So not sure. Could go either way. I mean, like... There, we, we have gone over folk tales before that are a little out there. This could be another story that just to keep the kids in the house and keep them from wandering too far from the house. Yeah. When people are hungry, they're going to kidnap you and eat you. You leave the house, you'll get kidnapped and eaten. So stay in the house. I mean, I would behave. I might. I still. You I st- wouldn't. <laughs> you, you wouldn't. <laughs> okay, you're right. <laughs> so as World War II raged across the globe, Roman Chikatilo was drafted into the Russian military in 1941, which left Anna and Andre on the farm alone. Anna and Andre were on the farm alone from 1941 on, and Andre's sister, Tatiana, was born in 1943. Now, her father couldn't have been Roman, but uh, who her father was is not known. Uh, There were some speculations that his mother was raped. Others were that she was unfaithful. Other stories said she was a sex worker. So I'm not sure what exactly caused it, but or not caused it. That's a horrible way to say somebody was born. Um, That's like, don't lie to me. You would say that about me. (laughs) Not sure what caused it. Sometimes it's debatable if you're even human. I'm pretty sure you're an alien from another planet. We'll go with that. So while Roman was in the war, he got wounded in combat and taken prisoner by the other side, which in the Soviet government branded you as a traitor, which is a very interesting 
thought process at the time. It was either be free, you know, not be taken prisoner or die were the only acceptable options. Uh, you you were caught, you were captured, you traitor. I know, right? How dare you have the audacity to get captured and survive? Because, you know, being a prisoner of war is so much fun. Oh, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. It's like summer camp. Uh, during the war, the Chikatilo family witnessed bombings, shootings, and were even forced to stand and watch their hut burn to the ground. Throughout the war, the family had very, very little, and Andre was forced to share a single bed with his mother. Being a chronic bedwetter, this led to a lot more problems for him. After each incident of wetting the bed, his mother would beat him. Because that'll help. It, it has been said that his mother was harsh and unforgiven, and she often berated and beat her children. She's just looking for excuses at this point. In school, Andre was shy and physically weaker than the other children. And then add on top of that, that the family was poor. He often fainted from hunger because they had nothing to eat. So he became a prime target for bullies. But somehow through all that, he still managed to be a good student and he loved to read. But he also had untreated nearsightedness, which led to struggles in the classroom and not being able to read the blackboard. It's bad that my first thought basically went to, did did he get beaten for not being able to read the blackboard and getting bad grades because he couldn't read the blackboard? No, he got good grades. It's just he, he struggled to read the back of the black. He, he struggled to read the, the chalkboard uh, and then out of, outside of class, the other kids beat the crap out of him. You can't, you can't see the blackboard, smack. That's for not having good eyesight. Well, they didn't have they didn't have money for food. They definitely didn't have money for glasses. No. So throughout school, he was able to maintain his reputation as a model student. He was the editor of the school newspaper and was the chairman pupil of the Communist Party Committee. I'm not completely sure what that means, but he was like a student representative of the Communist Party. But I'm not sure... Like, was that a school thing? Was that like an after school club? I that part I'm not 100% sure on. I don't know either, but that makes me think of like the um, the Hitler's youth thing where it was like a yeah, I think it was considered like an extracurricular thing for school to but it was more political. It might have been something like that. I think it probably was. I just didn't dig too far into it. Fair enough. Now, during puberty. Andre discovered chronic and severe impotence, which worsened his social awkwardness and his self-hatred. At 17, he developed his first crush on a girl, but never had the courage to talk to her. So instead, and you're going to say this went to 100 real quick, he approached his younger sister's 11-year-old friend and wrestled her to the ground. The struggle and the power trip resulted in him ejaculating, which set precedence that something about overpowering someone and them struggling against him was amazing for him. How about no? Yeah. How about no? We, we, could, just, we could just not. That would be great. I mean... 
I mean, if you want to leave, I can do the rest of the story by myself. It doesn't get better from here. Great, great. I told you it was a crazy one. I told you. Okay, we're going to need like a scale from like one to ten at some point, because like just saying that apparently doesn't doesn't. uh Yeah, I think doesn't make things clear. Hey, Krakow, this story is heavy. Oh, OK. Grabs popcorn. Um, so <laughs> oh, I, I wasn't expecting it to be this heavy. Fair enough. Uh, as he finished schooling, he applied to the Moscow State University, but was not accepted. Disheartened, he moved to Kursk in central Ukraine and worked as a laborer for three months before enrolling into a vocational school in 1955. Uh, this also marked his first actual romantic relationship. However, his inability to perform in the bedroom and the subsequent health self-hatred and everything, she left him after 18 months. Upon completing his vocational training, he once again relocated, and this time to Nizhny Tagil in Russia. He was drafted into the military in 1957 and served three years as a communications technician. In this position, he would install, maintain, and repair various communications equipment, cables, wires, etc. Then, after his service ended, he returned home to the Ukraine and tried to settle back into an attempt at a normal life. He started dating, uh, but when he continued to struggle physically, his girlfriend confided in her friends to ask for advice. It was just like, you know, is there something I can do? Yada, yada. And that led to the gossip mill starting. And soon most of the town oh, no. learned about it. And he was ashamed and embarrassed. And he even tried to take his own life. But his mother stopped him and literally removed the noose from his neck before he could. So there's nothing funny about that. But um, you know how we deal with situations like this. Humor. Um, yes. Did did he get beat for that? Probably, to be honest. And I, I never, I never support suicide. I think people should get help and things. But I do kind of wonder, knowing how this story ends, if maybe the world would have been better off if she had let him. And I do not say that lightly. Yeah, I. You'll you'll understand why. Oh, it's, listen, we're talking about this man on a true crime podcast and the story is heavy. So um, I think I already understand. At this time, <laughs> at this time, he relocated to Rostov-on-Don in southern Russia, looking for a new start. And then after his younger sister finished her schooling, she joined him in Rostov and they actually shared an apartment. They were roommates for about six months until... She got married and then um, she stayed in Rostov, but obviously moved in with her husband and their parents relocated uh, to the city. You know, his father was out of prisoner war jail. And um, yeah, so their parents located to Rostov and the family kind of reunited with hopes of better opportunities. You know, it couldn't have gotten much worse than the collective farm. Tatiana, his his sister, saw how Andre struggled with women and decided to play matchmaker. 
she introduced him to Fyodosa Anacheva in 1963. They dated for two whole weeks before they got married. Oh, okay. Now, Fyodosa understood that he was impotent, but they still wanted children. So they devised a system where he would take care of things and then use his fingers to impregnate her. And in 1965, they welcomed their daughter, Ludmilla. And then in 1969, her little brother, Yuri, was born. In 1970, Andre earned degrees in Russian literature and philology. Philology? Which... Phil, uh, yes. It has a lot of... Yes, philology, the, the study of Phil. No, it's philology, which is the study of language and oral and historical sources. It's actually easier for me to say the study of language in oral and historical sources than it is philology. Yeah, philology, yeah, the study of Phil. He then started teaching Russian literature in the nearby uh, town of... Novoshuktinsk. Spot on. 10 out of 10. Okay. Yeah, I, I got nothing. There's a lot of extra letters in there. In the nearby town of Novo. Yes. While he was extremely knowledgeable on the subject, he was not an effective teacher. He could not control or discipline his students. Uh, they, they wouldn't pay attention to him. He had, you know, he just... While he knew all of the book information, he couldn't get it across to his pupils. And then in May of 1973, he sexually assaulted a 15-year-old student of his. A few months later, he locked another student in his classroom and not only assaulted her sexually, but physically. He beat the crap out of the kid. And neither offense was disciplined by the school. Neither one. It, did they just not find out? Did they not believe the victims? What? I believe they did not believe the victims. But I am not 100% sure if they just never said anything. Um, but yeah, neither offense was disciplined. All right, then. By the next year, complaints piled up and the school asked him to either resign or be fired. So he, he, he quit. He's like, okay, I'll just quit. And it just went on his record as he left the, left the school. And he was able to quickly get another job at a different school in the same city. Now, he kept that job until 1978 due to staffing cutbacks. So that time he was just let go because they were cutting staff. And then he was able to find another teaching job at Technical Institute number 33 in Shakti. I just, I kind of want to go to technical school number 33. Like, put that on my resume. Where did where'd you go to school? Technical school number 33. Well, that's, that's funny because I went to technical school number one. <laughs> I wonder if there's like a competition. Like, you know, if you went to school number one versus school 33, like... Are you better or worse? I mean, that's that's kind of funny. Is this like, did they just run out of names for schools? I think the same thing whenever I see street names like Third Street, Fourth Street. Well, that's because that was the order they were. Ran out of names. Well, no, that's the order that they were built. 
like they started with First Street. Yeah, but still, they didn't. They just named it after the order that it was built instead of giving it a name. Same thing with the schools. They built technical school that number thirty-three, and this is like we're out of names. We have thirty-three technical schools. Let's just call it number thirty-three. Fair. I mean, but it, it's it's an easy to order system. You know, one's at the top, thirty-three's at the bottom. Yeah. You don't gotta, you don't gotta alphabetize. Alphabetizing is hard. No, technical school number one is probably like so fancy that it actually has a name, and it's not technical school number one. It's like, uh, you know. The technical school of technical schools, and then in parentheses, technical school number one. You don't want to know what goes on in technical school number two. I heard it's a little smelly. A little bit. You get used to it after a while. You would know. Fair enough. So, uh, 1978 was another milestone for Andre as he murdered for the first time. He lured a nine-year-old little girl... Yelen Zaknova into a secluded building and attempted to rape her. But he was unable to. And then her struggle led to him choking and stabbing her multiple times. He then threw her body in a nearby river. And from this point on, the only way he was able to get aroused was when he was stabbing or slashing. This, this, um, no, no. I told you this one's rough. Now, I will say we are not going to go through every single victim, but I do plan on uh, putting a chart on the website of everyone or linking to the one on Wikipedia um, just because they, they do deserve to be remembered. They deserve to be honored uh, because this guy was a monster. Clearly, yes. So her body was discovered two days later. And a 25-year-old man in town, Alexander Kruschenko, was arrested, tried, and convicted of the murder, even though he had an alibi. He was with his wife and friends at the time. So he had three people give him a solid alibi. And the uh, police at the time threatened, tortured, interrogated, and manipulated them to change their story, even though it was true, so that they could convict him. And then he was executed for the crime in July of 1983. What, what, what kind of system? What? Excuse me? Well, I mean, we are talking about Soviet Russia, which it has a reputation for a reason. Okay, fair, but still, I wasn't ready for that one. Yeah, so in my mind, I would consider Alexander another victim of Andre Chikatilo. yeah. So Chikatilo's teaching career ended in 1981 after many complaints of child molestation uh, for students of both sexes. It didn't he did not have a preference. They just had to be young, apparently. And then after that, and now it was on the record, he got a job as a supply clerk, which was a position that actually included extensive travel for work. He often took trains and buses and things to travel to different cities as part of his job. 
1981, he was leaving the public library in Rostov and saw 17-year-old Larissa Tachenko standing at the bus stop waiting for the bus. And again, he used a ruse to lure her into a secluded area. He attempted to rape her, but he was unprepared, so he did not have a knife on him and instead strangled and mutilated the victim. He, from here on out, developed a pattern of approaching children, runaways, and vagrants at bus stops, rail stations, always with some kind of ruse. A lot of times with younger folk, it was offerings of alcohol, maybe some drugs, a good time. Um, Other times he would approach sex workers, saying he would be a client. Um, But his murdering just escalated and it became more brutal and more violent. In 1982, he killed a 13-year-old girl, stabbing her over 20 times and beat beat her severely through her whole body, including breaking both of the eye sockets. I'm uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned like what, how he lured them away, like with alcohol and everything, because that was one of my questions. I was like, what what did he say to lure them away to these abandoned places? Yeah, it would either be alcohol or, you know, if someone seemed down on their luck, offering them some money or food. Yeah. But it was some sort of material thing that, you know, could help their situation. And again, he preyed on the downtrodden or children who are naturally inclined to be more trusting. Uh, They, you know. Not not only that, like we said, it's the Soviet Union, too. And like most people don't really have a lot. So like you offer a child candy, they're probably they're probably hungry and they're like, oh, candy food. Yes, give. So many of his victims were stabbed slashed and disemboweled but some were also strangled and beaten so he did have a lot of common markers and uh, pattern to a lot of his crimes but there were also sometimes variations depending so if he wasn't prepared or you know if he was feeling particularly violent at the time um, many of the victims also suffered suffered trauma to the eye sockets consistent with gouging the eyes out with a knife. Somehow that's worse than if he were using his thumbs or his fingers. Yeah. Fair enough. Now, I did not see, and I don't know if this fact would make it better or worse, if he did it before or after death. I mean... I have a horrible feeling it was pre-mortem, but I don't know. I would say it would be better after, because then at least, you know... Yeah. You're not feeling it. Agreed. You know. Agreed. But I don't know which one it was. So basically his MO would that was that he would lure them into a secluded area, overpower the victim, which again is why he usually chose children, runaways, homeless who are a little weaker, uh, whether it be from hunger or size, age, etc. Um, He would then tie them up and muffle their screams, usually by filling their mouth with mud or dirt or something he found nearby. And then after he did all of his horrible things, he would try to conceal the body a little bit. 
but they were usually found pretty easily. So it's not like he dug a hole and buried them, but like he would cover them up with some like brush or put them back into like the forest or something like that. Um, in January of 1983, police linked that four of these murders had the same killer. The Moscow police sent a task force to Rostov, led by Major Mikhail Fedosov, and the official name for this task force was Operation Forest Path. What would what would the suspect do if when you filled their mouth with mud, they were they just like, but jokes on you, I eat mud all the time and then just ate it. Would they be terrified and let them go or? Krakow, why are you the way that you are? I mean, it's one of life's mysteries. Uh, probably would find something else. Um, I'm not sure. Like, how far do you have to go to freak out the serial killer enough that he lets you go? Uh, I, I guess you can try to find out. <laughs> I'd rather not, but, you know. So, Operation Forest Path included 10 investigators and a specialist forensic analyst, Victor Burakov. Examining the body of Chikatilo's ninth victim, Olga Stemeknok, um, Burakov confirmed that there was a serial killer in the area. Now, they hadn't linked all of the crimes, but they finally, in September of 1983, had officially linked six murders together. Their initial theories based on the brutality of the crime included organ harvesters, a satanic cult, or a mentally ill individual. The task force interrogated and sometimes tortured suspects. And by um, September of 1983, when they had linked six of the murders, multiple people confessed to the crimes after the interrogations because they were so brutal. And four actually ended up taking their own lives by suicide based on what they had gone through. And, okay, so like at this point, is are the task force the new serial killers? Um, I So on one hand, awful, but they were able to solve over a thousand unrelated crimes, including 95 murders, 245 rapes, and 140 aggravated assaults. That's a lot. Yes. So I have a feeling it was, look, I didn't do this, but I will tell you what I did actually do. Uh, so. I mean, yeah, the the torture will usually get people to confess just about yeah. anything. Um, I am not going to condone their methods. I think it is awful and inhumane. Oh, no, no. But, yeah, no. I mean, they did solve crime. I guess. If those people actually committed the things that they said they committed. Uh, Chikatilo's victims usually suffered between 30 and 50 stab wounds. But his 17th victim, Sergei Markov, was not only emasculated, but stabbed over 70 times. 7-0. 70 times before being killed. And this is where we go back to what we talked about before that that's 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 a lot um it's definitely more than four definitely more than four but for someone to you know we, we talked about robberies gone wrong and and stuff like that before 
with knives and stuff like typically people who who are breaking into a home or something like that if it's if it's gone wrong it's like it's a gun it's it's done and over with but a knife is personal it's personal and 70 times that is yeah he thought about that that is a lot of anger a lot of aggression um yeah uh, yeah yeah that's horrifying so in september of 1984 one year later the task force had undercover officers on patrol in areas that they believed to be possible locations that the killer would find his victims like rail depots bus stops an undercover cop witnessed Chikatilo committing acts of freighterism, which I had to look up. And this is a type of sexual assault where the criminal rubs against their unwilling victim pelvis to pelvis. So it is not actual rape, but it is also unwanted, non-consensual sexual assault. The officer arrested Chikatilo and found an eight-inch knife, a bunch of rope, and Vaseline on his person. There's things you don't want to put together. I mean, I guess you could say that the Vaseline, some people use that instead of like lip balm. But the other stuff, I know there's lots of uses for Vaseline. Uh, I'm just saying he could have been like, if it was one of those tiny little ones, you could have been like, no, this is just my lip balm. Judging by like the type of person we're talking about here. Nah, that was probably one of those larger containers. Oh, I know it was. I know it wasn't. I know it wasn't. But I was going to say, like, just having Vaseline on your person is not. Yeah, no, no. Like, yeah, like you said, the small little containers or whatever. No, this man most likely had a large container. Probably had like a bucket. <laughs> like, why do you have a five gallon bucket of Vaseline? Don't ask. I have extremely dry skin. I have to coat my entire body with it. Moving on. So they took a blood sample from Chickatillo and it returned as type A. But the semen from all the serial crimes had been typed as AB. So they didn't they didn't have their man, they thought. He was charged with theft from a former employer that he had been dodging, and he was sentenced to one year in prison. He served three months and then was released. In August of 1985, he killed victim number 33, Natalia Paklostova on a business trip to Moscow. So he was nowhere near Rostov when, it ha when he did this. Between the 38 stab wounds and other telltale signs, her murder did get linked to the serial killer in Rostov. The task force reviewed airline records between Rostov and Moscow, but Chikatilo had taken the train and he stayed off their radar. Which I think is interesting that they didn't check train records, considering that they were watching bus stops and rail yards. Exactly. Like, you think they would check any form of public transportation other than, you know, yeah. the ones you can't really check, which is cars. But Yeah, like personal. Yeah. I mean, and honestly, I can't fault him for taking the train. I, um, this is off topic, but I, I need a break. Uh... I at the be uh, a couple of weeks back, beginning of the month, I uh, I took a train down to D.C. and it was actually a really nice trip. Like I I knew that because I was going to go go down there for the whole day, so I knew I wouldn't want to drive home afterwards. And it was just like really peaceful and chill to just like sit on the train, had my notebook, just chilling, 
had my headphones. It sounds nice. Yeah, it was just really, 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 really nice. I enjoyed it. Um, There's no trains around here except for like the the light rail. Yeah. In the cities. Well, I um, I went from so I had to go from Lancaster, which is like the it's a it's a bigger city. It's like 15, 20 minutes away for me. Um, so I went from Lancaster to Philly and then Philly from DC. So I did have to switch trains once. Um, and then the same back, but it's, it's not bad. And like, I've taken a train up to New York before. Um, I've taken the train back and forth to Philly. It's, it's nice. And then like, you don't have to worry about where to park and then driving home after a long day, yada, yada. It's all fun and games until you're going on a train ride with Krakow and he shows up in full cowboy gear. I mean, you can, it's not assigned seating. I can sit anywhere and avoid you. And just keep moving when you sit next to me. That's fine. Then we'll we'll just be playing musical chairs. Okay. This actually sounds like fun. Musical chairs on the train. Oh, we should both dress up in costume. <gasps> dude, dude, dude. Mm-hmm. Cowboys and robbers. One of us is the cowboy. One of us is the robber on a train. We're going to get thrown off the train and arrested. Pretty much. That's fine, though. That's fine. I like this plan. I'll bring my tiny cowboy hat. Oh, God. <laughs> This train ain't big enough for the two of us. Oh, man. Now I'm going to have to get like a black uh, princess bride mask. That can be the robber. Do it. Do it. (laughs) All right. So in November of 1985, Issa Kostoviev was appointed to oversee Operation Forest Path. More resources were added to the manhunt and a psychiatrist was consulted to develop a psychological profile on a serial killer for the first time in Soviet history. Dr. Alexander Bukhanovsky developed a 65-page psychological profile on the assailant, stating that the man committing these crimes was between 45 and 50 years old. He had a painful and isolated childhood, but was well-educated. He struggled with flirting and courting women, but was likely married with children. He probably traveled for work. He was an impotent sadist who was only aroused by seeing his victims suffer, and the murders were an analog for sex. I did try to see if this report had been published anywhere, uh, just out of curiosity, and I was unable to find it, but we will talk a little bit about Bukhanovsky later in the story. Um, But that's the kind of stuff that, like, the psychological aspect of things is always fascinating to me. Uh, the media followed the investigation very closely, and Chikatilo followed their coverage just as closely. He attempted to keep his urges at bay in hopes of staying a free man, but in 1987, he killed three times, each while on a business trip outside of Rostov. These murders were not initially linked to the manhut, and then he went quiet again until 1989. He started killing again in 1990. And, you know, he had slowly kind of petered out there. But with this new surge in murders, a massive police operation was put into place, including more undercover officers and um, extensive CCTV being installed in possible abduction and attack areas. In November of 1990, an officer witnessed Chikatilo covered in grass stains with a red smear on his cheek and a wound on one finger. Uh, that he was washing up at the Don Leskov station, which is a train station. 
The officer checked his papers, but had no reason to hold him, but did note his name in a report. So they got his name and he said it was a little suspicious. And then not long after they found the body of a woman and he was flagged after being questioned in the investigation previously and his, you know, very conspicuous appearance and behavior. So he was arrested on November 20th of 1990. So, um, I know we already passed that part, but, um, you were talking about the psychological part and you finding that interesting. Why do you think I'm friends with you? Feel free to leave this in or cut this out or whichever, but I thought you would like to know something pertaining to true true crime that I learned. Um, because I got to hear a little bit about, uh, from a person who does, uh, polygraph tests at uh, a sheriff's department. He was talking about the, the psychological part of that. It's, it's funny because he was basically telling how polygraph tests started out. And it's funny that, uh, basically he was saying people will incriminate themselves because how they used to do it was they had, they put a donkey in a tent and you were told to go in and pull the donkey's tail. And if the donkey made a noise, you were guilty. That was that was the old school lie detector test. What? But it was all psychological. They had painted the donkey's tail with like soot or ash or something like that that you couldn't see on the donkey's tail. So if you if you didn't do it, you're going to go in there and pull the tail because you're like, I, I didn't do it. So this magical donkey is not going to make noise when I pull the tail because I really didn't do it. So they'll go in, pull the tail, and they'll come back out, and they'll have the markings on their hands. They'll have the ink on their hands to show that they pulled the tail. But if the person did do it, they're going to be afraid that this donkey's going to tell on them, so they're not going to pull the tail. They'll go in and come, wait a minute, come back out and say, I pulled the tail, he didn't make a noise, but he won't have the marking on, on his hands, so they'll know he didn't pull the tail, so he must be guilty of something. That's crazy. But it's 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 all in their head that, this donkey's going to tell on me. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's absolutely hilarious. And now polygraph tests aren't really admissible in court, but I know a lot of times they will offer them. And it's kind of a psychological thing again, where it's like, you know, do you agree to take a polygraph? And if someone says no, they're automatically suspicious. Yeah. But apparently, apparently they are admissible. But like, it's, it's very tricky because like both sides have to agree on it yeah yeah it's but it's like everyone has to agree to allow it it's not like on tv where they're like just magically polygraph test they just whip out the paper and just like you did it yeah it's a lot more in depth than that now we have learned something i don't know if we should be concerned that we learned something from krakow but we learned something moving on so uh when he was arrested he was strip searched and police discovered rope and a folding knife, as well as more details on the finger wound that he had sustained. The finger was broken, the nail completely bitten off, and the wound was consistent with human teeth marks. In addition to the fact that it was an odd and fairly serious injury, he did not get medical attention to tend to it. He just cleaned it up and wrapped it up himself. I'm like, yeah, it'll be fine. It's fine. Run some water over to be good. Yeah. No. I was like, go to the hospital and lie about how it happened. But you should like, how do you, how do you think it's a good idea to just. How do you lie about that though if it, if it has like human teeth marks. Fair, fair. 
I was fighting with my buddy and he tried to bite my finger off. My buddy got drunk and he bit my finger. Charlie bit my finger. Charlie bit my finger. So when he was arrested, uh, he complained that they had already interviewed him in the 80s, but they didn't care. They were like, yeah, no, we're, we're, we're doing this. And again, they tested his blood type, which came back as type A. So this time they're like, no, we're going to make sure. And they tested a semen sample. And that came back as type AB. So they knew that they had a match. As they interrogated him, he denied the murders. I mean, shocking. A murderer denied murdering. But he did confess. Never would have thought. I know. It's never happened before. Um, He did confess to the child molestation. And then frustrated at the lack of progress towards a confession, Burakov and Fedosov requested that Dr. Buganovsky assist with the questioning. The doctor sat with Chikatilo and read excerpts from the 65-page profile. And within two hours, Chikatilo burst into tears and confessed to 36 of the 38 murders they had linked to him. Now, I will note he killed a lot more than what they had currently linked together, but he confessed to 36 of them. He denied two of the murders, and he gave detailed accounts of each of the crimes that he did confess to. So very detailed accounts of the 36, including body positioning, landmarks, and details that nobody else would have known. When asked about the eyes... He referenced an old folktale that the eyes would retain the image of their murderer, so he destroyed them to cover his tracks. If that's true or not, no one will ever know, but that is what he said. All right, then. He also admitted that he would often taste the blood of his victims and tear at parts of their bodies with his teeth. Not sure why, because he didn't, he wasn't like... Mavis or Dahmer. He wasn't a cannibal. He just he just bit at them and drank their blood. I don't. This is a vampire. I no. guess it could be a situation of he was experimenting with cannibalism. He was just like, hmm, let me try this. It could have been, and it's gross. Yeah. On November thirtieth, nineteen ninety, he was officially charged with thirty-six murders, and then convi- uh, confessed to an additional 20 with the same level of detail. In August of 1991, he was transferred to the Serbsky Institute for a 90-day psychiatric evaluation. Senior psychiatrist Andrei Tachenko noted multiple physiological problems attributed to prenatal brain damage in addition to a multitude of biological and environmental factors. So we have often talked about with serial killers, there is some sort of head trauma. And this one was, or brain damage of some sort. Uh, This one was while he was still in the womb. Um, He was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, but he was declared fit to stand trial, which you will often see in a lot of these uh, multi-murder cases that they uh, have some sort of borderline personality disorder, but they... They are fit to stand trial. They understand what they did. They understand that it was wrong. And those are the the factors to being able to go on trial. Uh, His trial began 
April 14th of 1992. And this was the first major media event of post-Soviet Russia. There was a press conference announced and they mentioned the charges, what, you know, that they had the guy, that they're going to trial, but they did not give any details on the identity of the accused. The media's first introduction to him was in the courtroom the first day of the trial. And to make it more of a spectacle, he was kept in an iron cage in the corner of the courtroom to protect him from the outrage of victims, friends, and family. That's, that's the, um, okay. That That's kind of scary that he's just locked up in an iron cage over there. And it's even scarier that it's for his protection. Yeah. I mean, they did the same with Pachushkin, except he was in a glass box, like bulletproof glass box. But yeah. He's like putting guys in boxes over there, I guess. Yeah, because uh, look, looking here as, as I'm listening, uh, yeah. That's, that, that is definitely the man in the iron in the, in the cage in the corner. So Chikatilo was convicted of 52 of the 53 counts of murder and all five counts of sexual assault against minors. He was given the death sentence plus 86 years. So I guess he needed to serve 86 years in prison after he died. Got to keep the ghost in there. Um, he tried to appeal, as they all do. And even sent a request for a pardon from President Boris Yeltsin, but that was denied in 1994. Why, why would why would he? I don't know. Like I kind of wonder. It's just like, dear President Yeltsin, hi. <laughs> I murdered 52 people, and I'm on death row. I'm really, 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 really sorry. I want to go home. Okay, thanks. Bye. Yeah, like, how how, how do you... And it's not like he, like, knew the president. Like, it, he just randomly sent a request. And then there's a... Then he, like, put some Vaseline on his lips and, like, gave gave the note a little kiss on the note on the bottom. So there's, like, a little, little grease lipstick, lipstick stain at the bottom. Oh, God. <laughs> Love your best friend, Andre. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> well, I'm sure this is not a surprise, but it was denied. <laughs> he just got the letter and just threw it out. I guess the kiss wasn't enough. On Valentine's Day of 1994, Andre Chikatilo was executed by a single gunshot behind the right ear. And he was then buried in an unmarked grave in the prison cemetery. I bet that place is haunted. Oh, yeah. You want to go? I have a feeling that even if we went over to Russia and found the scary Russian prison, they're not going to let us in. Unless it's no longer in operation and it's like Alcatraz and it's just abandoned. I was going to say, I have a feeling it's like the main Moscow prison. So since 1994, Dr. Bukhanovsky has released a set of criteria known as the Chikatilo Phenomenon, which is a set of criteria outlining various predispositions, environmental factors, and distinct characteristics of the physical brain that indicate a higher possibility for a person to become a violent criminal. And he's even lectured about this around the world, including the FBI's Department of Behavioral Sciences. Uh, the anomalies 
include the cerebral cortex and third ventricle of the brain. And these are markers for a predisposition to commit violent acts. Uh, Bukhanasi says multiple murderers feel an enormous relaxation of tension after they kill. And this instills a self-belief that they are doing what is necessary. And um, I might have, while doing my research, totally nerded out on this. So this ties into Jim Fallon's research on the MAOA gene that states the combination of genetics, brain damage, and environmental factors increase a person's likelihood of psychopathy. The MOA, MAOA gene affects neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. And I have not, I tried, I tried really hard to find if there's any in-depth research combining uh, Fallon's research and Chikatilo ph phenomenon uh, about the physical aspects of the cerebral vortex and third ventricle in addition to the MAOA gene with environmental factors. So I, I, I see a connection possible there. I am not a geneticist or a psychologist or a psychiatrist or even someone with half their brain capacity. Insane. I have a feeling that there is some sort of a link there that can actually help to determine um, the likelihood of someone being an extremely violent criminal. I know um, while I was reading up on Bukhanovsky's research, he studied. So I'm not sure and nobody's really sure, but for some reason, uh, Rostov is like the the mecca of serial killers they have more serial killers than anywhere else in the world i wonder if there's a reason for that i don't know he said he bukanovsky is on record saying it is not something in the water fair enough <laughs> it's something though well there there are environmental factors and you if you think about like so if it's usually some sort of head injury brain damage or um just natural uh, issue with the brain um, and then environmental factors. So if you are in a violent environment, if you are, you know, struggling with being able to eat or have a safe place to stay, you know, all these things kind of come together. So it could potentially be the environmental factors yeah. in the area. That's what I got. That was definitely a story. Yeah. And like I said, I am going to include the names of the victims in the story. Um, even though we did not go over all of them there, you know, I did not want to go into the details of 53 gruesome murders. Mm -hmm. uh, this was already heavy enough. And it was basically a sample of what the rest of them most likely were like. Unfortunately, uh, these people had to, to suffer. And it it's crazy because, you know, he was arrested and they did a blood test. And he passed. Yeah. And he kept killing. So, like, he would have been a horrible serial killer if he had been caught at that point, And yet he got to keep going and going. It's another story of, like, there's a lot of things that could have happened that could have made it, like, less horrible and less victims. But yeah, it didn't go that way. Anyway, super happy fun times. You're welcome, Krako. Yeah. Mm hmm. Very, very uplifting story. Yeah. Well, I, I've wanted to cover this one for a while, especially because we did cover Pachushkin, who 
tried to compete with Chikatilo. Uh, and there were some similarities there, like the, the cage in the trial and stuff, but it it did it was a hard one. Yeah. It's uh it's, it's bad when the serial killers start trying to compete. Also, I um so uh we we all know about losing sweet bubba. I um he always liked to lay on the murder book. That was one of his favorite things. So that is actually going to stay with his ashes. And that means I got a new murder book. Clearly, that was his book. It was. That's his notebook. He did most of the work. He did. He he He's the best researcher. So apologies for the very, very, very heavy episode. But it is a story that I've wanted to cover for a while. I mean, true crime is not a is not an easy subject. So, I mean, like it's expected that some, if not all of the stories are going to be heavy. Yeah, but usually we try to lighten the mood a little bit, but it's really hard to yeah to, to joke around and be funny when you're talking about something. Mm-hmm. But that's how we cope with things. It is. It is. So I'm going to. Actually, no, I was uh, I was saying I'm going to go like watch something funny, but I'm probably just going to go watch some more critical role after this. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm trying to catch up. That works, too. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Krakow. Yay. I'm not scarred at all. It's fine. As always, make sure to check out our website for all of the show notes, sources, and more information at thesquonkandthehag.com. And we would also love and appreciate your support by either leaving a review on iTunes or through small monthly donations using the viewer support link in the description. And if you don't subscribe, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast network to get notified of new episodes every Thursday. All right, Krakow, you ready? Goodbye. Okay,